We all owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities. And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to American Warrior Radio. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're broadcasting from the Four Patriots studio. Listen, areas of my community are already experiencing brownouts due to the extreme temperature conditions. Wouldn't be a problem if you had a Four Patriots all-solar emergency power generator. Check it out at fourpatriots.com. That's the numeral four, patriots.com. Use the discount code WARRIOR. You can save nearly $300 on one of those great generators or 10% off any other items. He was one of America's most celebrated flying aces. With 26 air victories, he was the most successful flying ace of World War I and was even awarded the Medal of Honor. From his hard scrabble beginnings, Eddie Rickenbacker was said to have cheated the Grim Reaper about as often as any living man. But during World War II, that claim would really be tested. Joining us to tell this amazing story of courage and faith is John Wukovitz, described as one of the most popular historians of, of the Pacific War by Booklist Magazine. His new book was just released. It's called Lost at Sea. Eddie Rickenbacker's 24 Days Adrift on the Pacific. John, welcome to American Warrior Radio. Well, thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here today with you to talk about what I truly see as a, an exciting story and in some ways quite a surprising one. It's definitely inspiring. And you, John, you're quite the prolific writer. You've got how many books published down? This is my 14th one. I've been doing it for 30 years, so I like to try and have approximately two years to write a book. Two-thirds of that two years is research, and then the final third is writing the manuscript. So it's been a pleasure. They've all been about uh, World War II, most of them the Pacific Theater, and uh, it's it was sure fun to come across this story. You've got another book out with one of my favorite Marines, maybe everybody's favorite Marine, Chesty Puller. I definitely want to get that and read it. Folks, if you want to check out John's work, visit John. Wukovitz.com is W-U-K-O-V-I-T-S.com. Eddie Rickenbacker, John, almost anybody who knows anything about military history, U.S. history, has heard that name before. Let's just kind of introduce folks to this gentleman because, I mean, you talk about grit from, from his earliest days on this planet. His father immigrated from Switzerland. They settled in Columbus, Ohio, and... Eddie's four or five years old. He's out on the streets, you know, collecting straight coal for the family. He had a paper route. I mean, he got engaged as the man of the family pretty early on. Yeah, he sure did. When I was uh, digging into this, he sort of reminded me of those old dead-end kids movies. I don't know if that'll date me, obviously. (laughs) I used to watch them when I was a, a youth about, you know, kids who, they didn't come from wealthy families at all. They were always running around the neighborhood, getting in minor trouble. That was Eddie, and he had to sort of take over when he was still in school, when his father passed away after getting involved in a, a fight with a fellow worker. And Eddie decided, okay, I'm no longer a student. I'm the man of the family. And there's a classic scene where the night of the funeral, Eddie was in bed, and he heard his mom crying downstairs. So he walked down there to the dining room where she was sitting, and he just told her, he promised her, don't worry, Mom, I'm here, I'll take care of things, I'll never make you cry, I promise you that. Then he went over and sat in the chair that was reserved for his father to indicate 
there's a new man in town of sorts here. He stopped going to school. As he said, I stopped going to school and went to work instead. At the ripe old age of 13. Yeah, you know, it's like nothing phased him. I mean, a lot of people, there they come across whatever it is, an obstacle, a problem, or whatever, and we're not sure how to handle things. Eddie seemed to just have this beacon guiding him and saying to him, I could do this. You know, Eddie, I'm going to be fine. I'll know what to do. Sometimes I won't have it figured out beforehand, but by the time I'm doing something, it'll be the right thing. And he just went ahead fearlessly uh, at that early age. And then, of course, in World War One, which you mentioned, and so on through his life, which included much more than just his uh, military endeavors. Yeah, a lot of folks may not know that really he first established his name as a race car driver. And we're talking in the early, early days of car racing. So Eddie's kind of out there doing his thing, and there's a Ford salesman who basically changed his life. Yeah, he, he was walking around, Eddie was, and he saw a crowd and walked over to it to find out, well, what is the interest? And there was a Ford salesman out explaining the car to the people, and Eddie was fascinated with it, so he hung around and uh, got a ride with the guy afterwards. And that began his love affair with speed. Well, he eventually got into the racing circuit, first as a riding mechanic. Racing today is dangerous, we know that. But in Eddie's day, I mean, it was like, you know, people were injured or killed, whatever the case, far more frequently. As a riding mechanic, he sat next to the driver of the race car, and his job was to sort of keep track of the other cars in the race and to look for any impediments on the track ahead and things like that. Well, he was in the open. It was not like there was a big windshield protecting him. So some of these riding mechanics suffered some serious injuries. He was injured more than a couple times by being tossed out of the car in accidents, but he survived throughout his whole life. He had 10, 12, 15 different times when you would have sworn, okay, this is it for Eddie Rickenbacker, and he emerged with you know, sometimes scrapes and injuries, but he, he never passed away from them. So he started to develop this feeling that, okay, Grim Reaper, uh, I've bested you. Don't mess around with me. And he carried that through his whole life. Now, he, he participated, or he was the backup driver in the very first Indianapolis 500? Yeah, he was in the early uh, races there at the Indianapolis 500. Uh, he started to build a national reputation. Uh, he loved saying, I like to get out front and go fast. Mm -hmm. uh, that was, you know, again, barreling straight ahead uh, like he did when he faced most every problem. You know, he'll tackle the thing head on. And he, he gained fame as that at Indianapolis, first as a race car driver, and later in life as part owner of the Indianapolis 500 track. And that's is that where he picked up the uh, the nickname Fast Eddie? Yeah. Even as a kid, he was always hustling around. If he could get a buck doing something, he'd hustle over and do that. But the racing was what really iced that nickname for him. John, we've got just a couple of minutes where we need to break away for a little bit. There was another experience then in life where another person changed his life again, and that was a fellow who was building airplanes. Out in California, you're talking about, huh? Glenn yeah. Martin? Yeah. Yeah. Eddie was out in California to do some racing, car racing, and loved it. Well, as he was driving along the road, not as a racer, but just as a, a driver, he noticed someone out in the field with an airplane and 
he stopped the car and went over to check out the aircraft. And um, as he was looking at it, the developer of that airplane and a famous uh, aviator himself, Glenn Martin, came out and introduced himself and offered to take Eddie up for a spin. Uh, Eddie fell in love with the air at that time, and that's when he uh, sort of didn't lose interest in racing. It's just something else came along and supplanted racing. Yeah, now it was in the sky. You know, a whole new realm opened up to him. He'd already sort of conquered land through his auto racing, you know, being a champion auto racer. And now the, the sky, that realm opened up to him, and he was fascinated with everything about it. You know, I think it's the coolest part of that story, John, that I learned from your book is Eddie Rickenbacker was afraid of heights. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yet he hopped into that plane and that was another thing, you know, yeah, I'm afraid of this, I'm afraid of that, but I'm going to do it. I can handle it. Self-doubt was not a word he would use in association with Eddie Rickenbacker. Uh, I don't know if there was an iota of self-doubt in that guy. John, we've got to take a break now. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, Eddie moving on into World War One. Ladies and gentlemen, there's your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking with John Wukovitz, his new book, is out. It's called Lost at Sea, Eddie Wickenbarker's 24 Days Adrift on the Pacific. Good stuff. You're not going to want to miss it. Stick around. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking with John Wukovitz. John, you can learn more about his writing, an extensively published author, mostly focusing on World War II in the Pacific. You can learn more. Visit johnwukovitz.com. It's W-U-K-O-V-I-T-S.com. John's new book, Lost at Sea, I really, really enjoyed it, John, and I learned a lot about Eddie Rickenbacker, who is a, a very famous name in our history. When World War I came... As I understand it, Eddie tried to enlist, but was basically told, nah, you're too old, forget about it. Yeah, he um, he thought he'd have something to offer, but uh, they did exactly what you said, uh, and so that kept him out for just a bit. He eventually did wind up overseas at first as an, a chauffeur, uh, and the man he uh, chauffeured was uh, Billy Mitchell, a famous advocate of air power, and that sort of led into his being accepted into the air service for himself, taking over what became maybe the most famous air unit over there, uh, the 94th Air Squadron. As I recall history back then, John, I mean, the flying aces, the pilots of World War One, were sort of the modern-day equivalent in our society back then of knights, if you will. Most of them were well-educated. They came from prominent families. And here's Eddie Rickenbacker, who, I don't know, didn't get much past the seventh grade, was pretty much self-educated. Did that cause him problems, or they just figured any man who's willing to get in one of those crates is, is okay with us? Well, no, at first, the, the men of the squadron, as you say, were mostly college graduates. Uh, they did not take fondly to Eddie taking over because they thought he was uneducated, uncouth, 
And, um, you know, he spoke a little bit funny, in their opinion, with the poor grammar. And so Eddie had to overcome that by using a firm hand with these guys. He was the boss. I'm in charge. He explained, here's how I want to run the squadron, and we're going to do it that way. You know, that sometimes goes over, sometimes not. But what really won all the pilots over was this absolute skill in the skies. He could outfly anybody, it seemed. You know, one of the men in that squadron, Reed Chambers, who was a very skilled aviator, he said, basically, he said, you know, uh, Eddie wasn't the best pilot in there in the squadron. But I'll tell you, in gunnery practice, I could shoot all kinds of holes in the sleeve way more than he did, but he could put more holes in a target in combat than I could. And so that really won over the whole squadron, his his skills in the sky, utter fearlessness, even if he was attacked by multiple German aircraft. Well, the other interesting thing I learned in your book was he received a, a wound as a child where he got some burning embers in his eye. So he didn't even have full use of his eyesight. He had a kind of a blind spot. Didn't bother telling the yeah. physicians about that, but uh, that didn't seem to hamper his, his aerial skills. No, it, not at all. A train kicked up a cinder into his eye when he was a kid, one of the uh, close calls that he experienced. Uh, but he sort of hid that, and an Army physician who befriended Eddie Rickenbacker just overlooked it and just didn't record it. So he was accepted as an aviator. Never bothered him when he was flying, uh, or at least he didn't let it bother him. He never considered it any kind of a, a handicap or anything like that. So with 26 air victories, he was our, our nation's highest ace in the First World War. And I read in your book, he, he was one of those guys who said, look, I would never ask my pilots to do something I'm not willing to do myself first. Tell us about the action for which he was awarded the Medal of Honor. Well, the um, it was in uh, May of 1918. He lifted off to uh, take off on a mission, and suddenly a number of German aircraft, seven, attacked him. And it was a battle between he and those seven. Now, some might turn back or try to turn away from the fight, but he just turned directly toward them and shot down two before the other five. Uh, while they were busy, he eluded them. Then he had to fly through a bunch of German ground fire to reach his airfield. When he landed, the flight aircraft had like 27 bullet holes in it, uh, some that came within just feet of Rickenbacker's uh, head. For those exploits, he was awarded the Medal of Honor. And keep in mind, in these days, pilots were flying without parachutes. That was one of the things. that I, I knew about that, but in researching the story, it hit me hard because, you know, these guys, the willingness to go up an aircraft without parachutes, I mean, how do you do that? But they didn't think anything of it. Either they would have preferred to have had a parachute, but the senior officers worried that if a pilot had a parachute, he would be more inclined to leave his aircraft than if he had no parachute. And that way they might save a few more airplanes. So sometimes these pilots face the gruesome choice of, do I remain with my damaged, aflame aircraft and go down with it like that, or do I jump to my death? Uh, that never occurred to him, although he came close to it a couple times when he thought his plane was going to crash. I think something that really speaks to his character, uh, obviously, Eddie came back to America uh, quite the hero, uh, lots of ticker tape parades and whatnot. But when people started offering him endorsement deals and, and even a, a film, 
he he refused it. He turned it down, John, because he said he didn't want to cheapen what they'd done over there. Yeah, he saw saw everything as it was his duty to uh, fly it for his country, and it would be demeaning if he accepted money for something while the other men who were there in all branches of service uh, received nothing. So he turned down almost everything. There, there's the one memoir fighting the flying circus, uh, which he did agree to do, and that money helped uh, establish him a little bit financially. But all the others were the movie deals, etc. He said no to. That kind of reminds me of that scene from Sergeant York, where after he comes home and and the congressman, I think it was from Tennessee, came in presenting all these proposals for breakfast cereal and all this other stuff. And, and Sergeant York kind of had the same reaction. He's like, "No, that's not uh, that's not for me." Uh, I tell you, John, when we come back. I want to talk a little bit about more of the post-war era for Eddie Rickenbacker, and then I just I want to get in to spend a lot of time with you about what happened there during the Second World War. That was quite a hairy experience. And at that point, I mean, he had, he established himself among the leadership in the in the country and the military as someone that you could depend on, who's someone whose advice was good advice, correct? I mean, finally that he's not a college graduate thing had kind of passed away? Yeah, yeah that was not a factor. The, uh, he, he established himself as a national hero, you know, along the likes of Charles Lindbergh and Babe Ruth, and as someone that the military... The high ups in the military wanted to consult for his advice on aviation, uh, and that's why in uh, before he went down at sea in the Pacific, uh, he went on different trips, different tours for the military to speak to people, uh, to other airmen, to other units about his life as a pilot and how they should handle themselves, etc. So he he was respected. As much as anybody, I guess. He was a national hero. What, you, know, you mentioned the parade. New York City hosted a big parade when he came back from World War One. Los Angeles had a huge one that included uh, Charlie Chaplin and Douglas Fairbanks and all of that. He was as big a hero as pretty much anyone until Charles Lindbergh came along, I suppose. But then Lindbergh in the 30s with his uh, flirtations with um, Hitler, sort of fell a little bit out of favor. Sure. And sure. Eddie resumed his place in the 1930s as one of the nation's top, uh, most respected people. Ladies and gentlemen, we have to take another break. When we come back, the Grim Reaper was not done with Eddie Rickenbacker. and we come back, we're going to talk about one of the other plane crashes he was involved in. Stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're coming to you from the Ford Patriots studio. At Ford Patriots, they champion freedom and self-reliance, and they give your family the tools to do so. Visit FordPatriots.com. That's the numeral FordPatriots.com. Use the discount code WARRIOR for 10% off any other items on your first order. We're talking with John Wukovich, who's got a great book out. He's a, a, got 14 books out, if I'm not mistaken, John, but his latest is called Lost at Sea. It tells the story of Eddie Rickenbacker and his comrades 24 days adrift in the Pacific Ocean during World War II. John, before we get through that, Eddie was a, a brilliant mechanic, a great pilot, great driver, but also he had a good business head on him. 
And he, keep in mind, this is the early days of, of passenger air travel, and he founded uh, the Florida Airways, which then merged with Eastern Airlines with Eddie at the helm, and he built it up to quite the successful endeavor. Yeah, he, uh, as you say, sort of just knew how to handle people. Even way back as a child, he seemed to have that skill. So he took over Eastern Airlines, which was in a slump, for sure, as a mild way of saying it. And because of his administrative acumen, he was able to turn it into a profitable enterprise. He sometimes angered some of the people who worked for him because he just insisted on, again, we got to do it my way. I know how to handle this. And he would sort of come across as arrogant and dictatorial in that regard, but he wasn't going to be swayed in any way. The um, So he turned that around and made Eastern the success that it was. I tell you, it's somewhat of a foreshadowing of his experience and why well, his experience on the home front when, when Eddie went down the Pacific. Tell us uh, real quickly about the, the crash on February 26, 1941. Yeah, I still don't know how he survived that, to be honest with you. Uh, he was on a flight from New York City to Atlanta, and um, his plane, uh, in which he was in with 13 passengers, encountered some heavy overcast as they neared the Atlanta airport. The pilot and co-pilot, they received information from the terminal at Atlanta airport about the low ceiling that they were flying into, but they failed to adjust their altimeters to compensate for that. So suddenly, as they were in their final approach, the airplane clipped the tops of some trees and flipped the aircraft over. It ended up plowing into the ground with such force that the front third of the plane sort of crumbled up and folded over the back third of the plane. It has killed the pilot and co-pilot instantly. They folded over somewhat wedged in between those two parts was Eddie Rickenbacker. Badly damaged, a lot of broken bones, bleeding everywhere, but he was alive. He, he could at least breathe, but the situation certainly looked perilous. As he lay there, he thought, well, if I'm going to die, I may as well die trying to get out instead of just lying here. So he attempted to move from his position there, but in doing so, he scraped against a razor-sharp piece of metal sticking down, and it sort of poked his eyeball out and left it dangling on the chin. He broke some ribs, and so he couldn't do anything more. And he stayed in that position, shouting encouragement to other passengers who had survived, especially telling them, don't light a match, because one of the passengers was going to light a match to start a fire on a cold night. And he said, don't light a match. There's gasoline leaking all over the place, especially right above his head. Well, rescuers eventually found them, took Rickenbacker to a hospital in Atlanta, where a long recovery enabled him to at least move around with the help of a cane. He suffered horrible back pains, had to have it massaged almost every day. But at least he was back on his feet, and he was proud of that. How long... Between that crash and the time when, I mean, here, here's good old Eddie, he, you know, winked at the Grim Reaper once again. And uh, how long yeah. between that crash and when Secretary of War Henry Stinson sent him on the tour of those Pacific theater bases with a, a special message from President Roosevelt to General MacArthur? Well, from February of 41 until, uh, what was it, March, I think, of 42, a year anyway. 
which was not that long a time because he had spent uh, the first third of that uh, span in the hospital and recovering. He still was not recovered when Stimson asked him to go on these trips, but he was allowed to take a masseuse with him for some of them, the earlier ones, and a good friend of his by the name of Colonel uh, Hans Christian Adamson. The one in the Pacific, though, uh, the, the final one, uh, he was not permitted to take a uh, masseuse. Uh, there wasn't room for him, uh, so he had to put up with the, um, the discomfort you know, all through the whole trip. So they, they load him up in a B-17, an, an older B-17, as I understand it, and uh, sure as heck, first attempt, that plane crashes again. But really, Eddie wanted to get going. He felt compelled to get going, so they jumped in another aircraft without really doing the checks that they should have done and take off. And eventually, from what I get from your book, John, that led to them going way off course and having a ditch in the Pacific. Yeah, he, he was eager to keep going because he had been given a secret message to deliver to General Douglas MacArthur in New Guinea. No one to this day has ever divulged what was in that message. I can only assume that it was from government officials telling him to temper his criticism of the Europe first strategy, you know, to get going against that off Hitler. Uh, he wanted more supplies to come his way and to temper his comments about a possible presidential run in 1944. But anyway, uh, they flew out to Hawaii from the West Coast, and it was in Hawaii that that event occurred where they started to take off in that older B-17, and uh, a brake expander tube burst and caused it to swerve, and the pilot had a heck of a time getting it under control. He finally did. Now, when you're going to receive another aircraft, the pilot wants to check it out. That's part of their responsibility. But Eddie wanted to get going. So let's get that substitute aircraft and get up into the air as soon as possible. So they didn't have time to check some of those delicate aeronautical instruments, like an octant and things like that, a direction finder, which happened both to be malfunctioning in part because of uh, the lack of time to check out those instruments. So they took off, were headed toward Canton Island when they became lost. Part of the reason was that the pilot of the aircraft, Captain Cherry, thought that the tailwind speed was 10 miles per hour. Rickenbacker thought it was 30 miles per hour. But they went by what the captain said, and he, to uh, counter the effects of the uh, smaller airspeed, the wind speed, he increased the aircraft rate of travel. So they overshot the island, became lost right near where the equator and international dateline intersect, had to ditch at sea. And I think one of the things that also came out, you know, he's flying, was it Captain Cherry, William Cherry? Yes, Captain William Cherry. His, his rank was captain. He's flying one of the most famous aviators in our history. But Captain Cherry had some skills as well, and, and that came through. We got just about a minute for the next break, John, but that really came through. I mean, ditching a B-17 is not an easy task, and from several thousand feet in the air, the ocean just looks nice and smooth, but you get closer out there, and boy, you got some pretty high waves. They, they could have lost it all right then. Exactly, and, and I think most of the guys felt that, you know, this this is probably our end. Captain Cherry was a, an immensely skillful pilot. 
Eddie Rickenbacker was not at first impressed with him when he met Captain Cherry in Hawaii because he didn't look like an aviator, in Rickenbacker's opinion. He had a goatee and he wore cowboy boots and he thought, oh, who is this guy? Well, Cherry showed him with the ditching, which no one had ever successfully done with an aircraft of that size, a B-17. He landed it between crests, you know, in the trough. Uh, he purposely put it down gently in between two of the wave crests, and then used the one wave crest to sort of buffer the collision into the water and, and settled the plane, uh, and nobody was um, killed in that. Uh, they were injured. There were some, uh, you know, bloody faces and things like that, but they all survived and, and got out of the aircraft into some rafts. Ladies and gentlemen, that began a 24-day odyssey adrift at sea in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and morale was pretty low. We'll hear more about that from John Wilkowitz when we come back. Stick around. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia. We're talking with John Wukovitz about his great new book called Lost at Sea, telling the saga of uh, World War I hero Eddie Rickenbacker and some comrades adrift in the Pacific Ocean during the Second World War. You can learn more about John and his writings. Visit johnwukovitz.com. That's W-U-K-O-V-I-T-S.com. John, they've now ditched in the oceans. And one thing that really struck me from reading your book is how poorly those aircraft were prepared for this kind of a situation. I mean, the rafts were too small. There wasn't enough food. There was, you know, very little access to water or desalinization equipment. It just was a bad, bad scene. They pretty much threw out everything they didn't need as they're preparing to ditch in order to lighten the aircraft to gain a few more minutes in the air. Here's these men with not much going for them except these very tiny rafts. And I encourage folks, look at the book and, and just look at the size of these rafts that these crewmen were squeezed into. It, it, that amazed me, too, when I researched the book. There were three rafts. The two larger ones, and I use that term larger loosely, were compared basically to the size of a mattress for a single bed. And three men were supposed to fit into that. They were seven feet long by four feet wide, but because of the rod sides to the raft, the interior was much smaller. So they had to twist themselves into all kinds of shapes just to fit the three fully grown men into them. The smaller raft took care of the other two, and they compared that to a bathtub, like two men in a bathtub all day. Now, maybe listeners might think, well, a bathtub's not too bad, or a single mattress not too bad. Well, then add on top of that the swells, the ocean swells, moving you up and down all over the place, the heat of the sun, the sharks, uh, lack of sleep, and everything else they faced for three weeks. And those rafts were certainly inadequate to the test. Eddie Rickenbacker swore, one day I'm going to meet the designers of these rafts and let them know exactly what I think. <laughs> you mentioned they had uh, no provisions. 
all they managed to remove from the aircraft were four oranges, and that had to last them. It turned out to be eight days with only four oranges to be shared among eight men. Uh, the, uh, that's, that's not much. They did have some equipment, some first aid kits, and in one of the uh, first aid kit, or they, they had a line with some hooks, but they didn't have any bait. They tried with the oranges and the orange rind and then the interior of the orange, orange pulp, but fish stayed away from it. So they were adrift without any food, other than those four oranges, without any fresh water. And they had to make that last. They didn't know how long. It turned out to be the eight days. But again, at the early stages, they thought that rescue was going to come any time because once the military found out that Eddie Rickenbacker was involved, they would certainly mount a massive search for him. The other thing that people need to keep in mind, and this is why I enjoyed your book so much, John, you, you paint a, a wonderful mental picture. You know, you'd think that being near the equator, you know, things would be nice and calm and and beautiful, but all day long you're getting beat on by the sun, and the salt water is splashing all over you, making you more comfortable and increasing the likelihood of your skin burning. And then, of course, at night, it got really, really cold, and these guys have developed so many sores from the seawater and the sun that they're packed in there like sardines and can't even shift without disturbing the guy next to them. And so it was just a really, really tough scene. And, and then, by the way, you've got sharks circling around the whole time. Now, they lashed the three boats together, three rafts together, just so they could stay as a group. And I tell you, Faith just played such an amazing role in this whole story. Tell us the, the real quick, John, about the, you know, they've all the oranges are gone. They can't catch any fish. They've got no bait. And one fellow did save his Bible, and they would have these, like, prayers in the evening. And one day, a bird literally lands on Eddie's head. Yeah, the, the Bible, the private Johnny Bartek was the engineer on the aircraft, and it, it had been given to him back home by his Baptist church when he was going over to the Pacific. And when they were in the process of ditching the plane, Bartek, who loved photography and had this very expensive camera, he looked at, he had the camera in one hand and that New Testament in the other. And even though he was not a religious person, his mom was, but he was sort of like a lot of people went to church because mom made him go to church. Well, he decided, I'm going to keep this New Testament. And he tossed the camera over into the ocean. They started having prayer meetings eventually where they would basically ask for help from God. They would read a passage in the New Testament. And this New Testament also had an addendum with some things from Psalms and other parts of the Old Testament. Well, they'd been praying for food quite a bit. And after one of those prayer services, Eddie was sitting up in his raft when suddenly this tern, a seagull-like kind of a bird, landed on his hat. Eddie had this old fedora hat that he wore all the time. And it landed right on top. Here you had eight guys starving, and they're looking at this bird on Eddie's head and just praying, please, bird, stay where you are, as Eddie slowly raised his right hand up, grabbed the turn by its leg, and rang uh, around its neck. Uh, they divided that bird and uh, passed out the uh, little bit of meat that there was to the eight individuals. They kept the intestines, and that was the best move, because Right away, they put that at the end of the fish hooks, 
and caught a couple of fish. I mean, within five minutes, they had two fish. So now they thought, fantastic, we have a source of food. We don't have to worry about that. But we still don't have any fresh water. It hadn't rained in those eight days. They can't drink the ocean water because that can be deadly. So they needed something. And that was the second thing that uh, happened that made some of the men who at the start were somewhat dubious about religion. Uh, Colonel Adamson was an agnostic, and the co-pilot, Lieutenant Whitaker, was now now atheist. We thought prayer was stupid. Now they're starting to, you know, see things a little bit differently. John, we're, we're kind of running out of time here. We've got just a few minutes left. Eventually, they, they all survived, except for Alexander Kaczmarczyk, who was drinking seawater. He passed away, and yeah. they buried him at sea. But there was a tension between Captain Cherry and Rickenbacker, and I don't want to give too much of the story away. I want people to read the book to get that. But eventually, Captain Cherry said, look, if we're going to get out of this, we need to separate the three rafts and, and just sort of spread the, the likelihood of someone being able to see us. So he, he went ahead and did that. Uh, eventually he was spotted by a seaplane and rescued. As I, if I get this correctly, then the other three were actually saw an island and were able to land on that island and were rescued by the natives. And, of course, Eddie and his comrades were then uh, also rescued by some uh, search and rescue parties. The After all this, after the war, did Captain Cherry ever really forgive Eddie Rickenbacker? Did they ever make amends? Nope, never. I interviewed his uh, daughter about this, and she said Dad would rarely talk about Rickenbacker other than to say that Eddie was the most arrogant SOB he had ever met. Captain Cherry justifiably felt he should have been in command of the three rafts. He was a pilot of the aircraft that ditched. He should have been in command, and, and he was correcting that. But it was totally irrational for him to think that with Eddie Rickenbacker there, that the the other guys wouldn't not would not start turning toward the national hero, who had escaped all kinds of scrapes with death, who had received the Medal of Honor. Uh, they, they would start naturally looking to him. It was also unreasonable to think that Eddie Rickenbacker would let anybody decide Eddie Rickenbacker's fate. Sure. Other than Eddie Rickenbacker. Well, in a lot of ways, he also, I mean, he took to, his morale kept dropping. He took to just berating some of the other guys, telling them not to give up, and, and using that strong, you know, that strong mindset that, that got him through so many other scrapes there. So that did make a difference. Just about a, one minute left, John. Um, again, I encourage folks to visit com. I really, really enjoyed this book, sir. I'm going to read more of those. If I'm not mistaken, I checked your website, and you've got some news about Mel Gibson is going to direct one of your, or the film adaptation of, of your your book, Hell from Heavens? Yeah, the book Hell from Heavens is about a destroyer off Okinawa that was attacked by 22 kamikazes in 80 minutes and survived. Hmm. And um, uh, Gibson uh, got a hold of it and uh, has agreed to direct the film. Mark Wahlberg has agreed to star in it. And uh, it's now in pre-production, uh, which it has been, it actually started before COVID, and then COVID came along and stopped everything uh, for a few years. So they've had to restart, and that's what they're doing now. Outstanding. John, I, I, folks, visit johnwukovitz.com, W-U-K-O-V-I-T-S.com. John, we're definitely going to have you back soon. Thanks for spending some time with our listeners today. My pleasure, Ben. You did a great job. Thank you, sir. Don't forget, folks, you can find this podcast and over 500 others at AmericanWarriorRadio.com. 
Until next time, all policies and procedures are to remain in place. Take care. You've been listening to American Warrior Radio. Archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform.